Once again in Memphis, today I'm sitting here with Jay Seelman, who is the former CEO of the Blues Foundation. Was there more to that title? The, president and CEO? The, the final title was President and CEO. Jay retired about a year ago, and he's enjoying his new life as a, a retired Memphian. Memphian. Yes. Um, <clears throat> but I want to ask you about how you got to the Blues Foundation and what you did at the Blues Foundation. So let me go back, way back to your beginnings. You, you come from Iowa. Tell me about growing up in Iowa. Well, I grew up in uh, Northeast Iowa. I grew up in uh, a town of about 8,000 at that time. And um, one of the biggest industries there was the Chicago uh, Great Western Railroad. At that time, it was called Chicago Great Western. It became the Chicago Northwestern. So it was a railroad town. And the, the railroad came out from Chicago. And for some reason, in my hometown in northeast Iowa, it branched out and went to other places. And there were roundhouses and diesel repair shops and ice houses and uh, uh, boxcar repair places and even and even uh, white-collar jobs in the railroad there. So it, it was a railroad town. And because of that, and going way back to when they, when they built it, I grew up in a community, uh, Owine, named after two Germans, but with a large uh, Italian-American and a large Mexican-American community. And I went to Catholic grade school with a lot of Italian-Americans and a lot of Mexican-Americans. Um, you know, growing up, in Iowa in the 50s and 60s was pretty idyllic. Um, some of the luckiest people in the history of the world grew up in post-World War II America. So um, it was all good. It was all good. Is, what would be a big town close by? The biggest town close by would be Waterloo. And Waterloo was where there was a, a huge John Deere tractor works. There was also Wrath Packing, which at that time was ham and hot dogs and, you know, pork products. Uh, that was the closest one. How far would that be? About 40 miles away. Okay. And a lot, of, a lot of people from my hometown would drive there to work and work in the factories. Um, you know, that was the time of unions and uh, blue-collar jobs, and, and so people with, with, you know, high school education or whatever, you know, would, would make a decent, decent living. Was there a possibility that you would have considered railroad or the, the railway life as a, a career? Um, no, I had friends that worked for them in the summertime, and, but I think I was always destined for higher education. And that meant going to University for Political Science. Well, it meant going to college for something. Right. Um, I was always a bit of a rebel, and so taking anything for granted or getting on a path leading to one thing was, you know, not the way anyone except for perhaps my... That's not the way anyone saw it, but perhaps my mother was hoping for that. Right. So how did that journey what what was the journey from getting out of the little town to going to junior college i believe and then yeah know. well um i was so not into doing the normal thing that when i graduated high school i had no intentions of going to college just because 
what's the hurry or whatever. Um, I got into some trouble the first summer out of high school. And, Would you like to elaborate or not? Well, you know, it was young people doing what young people do in summer, you know, raising hell. And I mean, I could tell a long version of it, but, you know, the cops raided a party and one thing led to another. And pretty soon it was like, you know, maybe I should go to college <laughs> just to get out of town. Oh, You know, I, I always used to joke that we had the 60s and the 70s in, in, in Iowa. And so I graduated from high school in 1971, and it was, you know, to over-exaggerate something that I never was at, but we had the summer of love, you know, in Iowa in 1971, only four years after San Francisco. <laughs> but it got there. It eventually. got there, and it was, it was wild that summer, and it was young people doing whatever they wanted to, and old people not liking it. So when you decide, okay, maybe I need to get out and do something, what well, what did you choose? Well, you know, I had these friends that were already going to junior college, and it was August, and it's like, well, how do you get into college? And well, try try this one, and I so I went to Ellsworth Community College in Iowa Falls, and and said, I'd like to come here. What do I need to do? And the question was, did you graduate from high school? Yes. Can you give us transcripts? Yes. So I went two years to junior college, in in Iowa Falls, Iowa which was another blessing in disguise because you could be really wild. <laughs> this seems to be a theme here. Well, it has been. You could be really wild and still do well if you put in a certain amount of effort. Um, you know, so many freshmen and sophomores, no matter where they go and no matter what their talents are, have problems. Right. Well, it might have been a little bit easier there um, to kind of get through those those years or whatever. So I went to two years of at Ellsworth Community College, and then I transferred to the University of Iowa. And by that time, you know, the school, the grades were good and, the, and taking this more seriously. Well, I always took it seriously because once you put the money down, that's it. Mm -hmm. We're not spending money for nothing. You paid your tuition, you're going to at least, you know, get good grades or whatever. So, and then I went to the University of Iowa and graduated, got a Bachelor of Arts there in 1975. And the only place I played, applied to law school was the University of Iowa. Because back then, in, the, in 1975, you had to pay 50 or $60 or something to even submit an application. Well, one, the money wasn't there, or else my mother might have, or my parents might have given me the money. But I'm not paying someone 50 or 60 bucks just to apply. Right. What kind of ripoff is that? So the only place I applied was the University of Iowa. And I got a letter back saying, you're accepted, you can start right now in the summer program. Whoa, 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 <laughs> I ain't going to college in the summer. Are you kidding me? I just graduated, I gotta enjoy summer. <laughs> and my mother was of course beside herself. And then sometime in July or whatever, they said, okay, you can start in the fall. And then I started law school in, in the fall of 1975. And why law? Like, what did you have in mind? Oh, man, I, I had a friend from Owine that went to, in my Catholic grade school, Sacred Heart, and he went to a all-classes reunion at Sacred Heart one year, and our kindergarten teacher asked him, this is, you know, 20, 30 years later, whatever, Kindergarten teacher asked him, is Jay Seelman a lawyer? 
So, you know, I was interested in, I was interested in, in government, I was interested in politics, I was interested in civil rights, I was interested in, in, in all those things, and I was interested in, uh, in, in public service and, 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 and having the tools and the skills to do that. You know, I may have been the last person that knew me to realize that that's where I was going. <laughs> you, got, you know, everyone else knew that. Right. If you didn't go there, you're wasting your, you're wasting yourself or whatever. Because, um, I had a neighborhood mother who said, "Yeah, you've been arguing cases with me since you were six years old." And so, when you started, when you followed that path, did it come naturally to you? Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved law school. Um couple of reasons. One, the wild hippie thought is, wow, I'm in law school, that's cool. Yeah. But it was also the first um, real educational, almost the first real educational challenge I've ever had. And there are people that go to law school that don't try very hard, you know, to, to stereotypes because their dad has a firm back home or whatever, or they're not really into it. But for me, it was fascinating. And and I had very long hair when I started law school, and I had professors tell me later, and I sat in the front row because I was starting to I was starting to lose my vision, not lose my vision, but starting to need glasses. Well, again, at that point, you wouldn't buy glasses until you really needed them. Right. So I cheated for a while by sitting in the front row, and they're like, "Oh no, a socialist is sitting in the front <laughs> row. It's going to be one of those semesters or whatever." Well, I wasn't like that at all. I didn't have no political agenda with, with the legal system or whatever. But one of the things that, that got me was how much they respected young people and how much time they would spend with young people. And the idea that me, you know, some skinny, long-haired guy could go into these professors' offices after, after class or in the afternoon and ask them questions for an hour and they would sit there and answer them as if they had nothing more important to do was very empowering but also made me to a certain extent within the limits of my personality as as one person said made me take this pretty seriously because if they were willing to do that then I needed to do something in return I studied and tried and did everything in law school. It was one of the greatest fun and important experiences in my life. Of course, we've you know, had some since then, but at the time, it was, it's life-changing. I got, you know, just in 2015, the University of Iowa gave me the Distinguished Alumni Award. Wow. Yeah. For the blues work. Not really for legal work, for blues work. And I told them that, that the University of Iowa Law School allowed me to do this, gave me this opportunity, gave me the tools, changed me, made me think this way. You know, I always had the ability, perhaps, and, uh, you know, parents in my hometown thought I could be something, but I was wild. And at that, that doesn't time, surprise in me. the sixties and seventies, getting wild was wild. Right. I mean, you know. So when you graduated, what did you pursue in law? Well, yeah, there's another good one. 
Um, you know, in law school, firms come and interview you, and you sign up for these firms. And I'm like, a law firm in Cedar Rapids, a law firm in Cedar Falls, a law firm in Dubuque? What am I going to do in a law firm? And you never really had any responsibility, and you really didn't think about the future, and more was like, where's, where's the next concert or whatever was, you know, more important. And now you got to make these decisions. Um, sorry, did you get out of Iowa much when you were down, when you were growing up? No. Had you traveled much? No. Any? Um, I went to, I, I went on Boy Scout trips to Minnesota and, 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 and to uh, a baseball game in Minnesota when I was still in high school, probably the only only time I ever left the state okay, until so, I was 18. And as, as somebody who's growing up in a, in a small town, is that something that you kind of long for to get out or not really wanted no, to? No, no, because Owine o- was, o- was fun and cool. And in fact, I'm, you know, the wildness is a product of that town. It was a wild town. <laughs> right. F- but fun, smart, funny wild guys. Um, so we, you know, between baseball and, you know, baseball when you're a kid and, and raising hell when you were older, it was a fun place to live. If you're a baseball fan, what team would be? I was a baseball fan of the Cincinnati Reds because of Frank Robinson. Oh, okay. So it wasn't really a geographical thing. That was not the closest. No, most people do geographical. Both my brothers are Cardinal fans. Uh, My mother and sister are, are Cub fans. Um... But I was a Reds fan because of I saw I, I saw Frank Robinson play on the game of the week at some crucial point when you're starting to you know six or whatever it was you're cognizant and you start you know paying attention. I mean I played I played ball in the backyard before that, but um, in, and I can, I don't remember exactly what this day I can make up the kind of things he did because that's the kind of player he was. Yeah. But it was Frank Robinson in 1959 that made me a Cincinnati Reds fan. Wow. How did music come into your life? Um, my dad uh, played clarinet. My dad played in swing bands when he was, you know, in high school and for a little bit after, but then World War II, and I don't think he ever played after World War II. But he had a record collection, and um, I never played that much attention to the music but because uh, he, you know, he was swing music, and I ne- didn't really catch catch me. But at a very early age, I remember uh, Bobby Darren's "Mac the Knife," mm-hmm. which you know, to this day, is a bad, bad, bad song. And then you know, my dad stopped buying music when it got to the point where he had to be an adult now, and there was no five kids or whatever, no money to be buying records. Okay. But one of the last ones that I remember him buying was he bought um, um, Stan Getz and and, uh, and uh, Gilbert, yeah, Giacomo Gilberto, right. ba- Bossa Nova, Girl from Ipanema. Yeah. And so I heard the Girl from Ipanema when I was, you know, eight years old or whatever, and you know that one stuck with me a long time. I don't know how many people I've turned on to Bossa Nova music. Blues fans, rock fans, kids—you know, whatever. You don't have this, or you play at your house. What's that? Oh man, you don't know about this. Um, That—that's how much that stuck with me all the years. And 
years later, in 2001, Priscilla and I sat at the booth in Rio, where where they where they wrote the song where she walked by every day. Really? Yeah, and I mean, I was beside myself. It's crazy because I heard that song this morning on the radio. Well, well, you know, to think that a kid from Owen, Iowa, is sitting in Rio de Janeiro, at the very booth where um, Gilberto and in Gil, I, I forget right now, where they watched that girl walk by every day. And when the Olympics were in Brazil, she was all over the place. If she was on television, she was on, you could look her up on the internet or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, 60 years later, she's still hot. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay, so I, I interrupted. You, you had the choice of three law firms, and then you were to decide. Well, no, I didn't have a choice. Oh. But they, they would say, we're interviewing today, and I'm like, Come, that's not me. What am I going to do? Well, um, my mom and dad were very active in the Democratic Party, just as field workers and volunteers and drive you here and hand out stuff. And so I did that as a kid myself. So in between my second and third year of law school, I got an internship in the United States Senate uh, Judiciary Committee on Juvenile Justice. And... One day, so that was the summer of, of 77. So in the spring of 78, when I'm about ready to graduate, um, the, the Polk County Attorney's Office, the prosecuting office from Des Moines, Iowa, the largest city in the state of Iowa, came to interview. And, um, and I don't believe he was specifically looking for a, juvenile, a person to do juvenile work, but I went to that... Well, yeah, okay. I went to that interview because Dan, the, the name of the county attorney was Dan Johnston. Dan Johnston was the elected county attorney then, but prior to that, he had been an ACLU lawyer in Des Moines, and he argued the case in front of the Supreme Court, Tinker versus Board of Education. Tinkers were kids who wore black armbands to school to protest the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and were suspended. And so the guy that was coming to interview had since been elected as the county prosecutor from the ACLU, but I knew that he was the one who argued the case, and that case is very famous, especially to someone like me, because the famous line is, the Constitution does not end at the schoolhouse door. And I'm like, right on, right on, right on. (laughs) And so you know, it established, you know, some rights for kids. And, and he was the, 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 the attorney that took it all the way to the Supreme Court. So he was the one interviewing. And, you know, maybe it looked on, on my resume and I'd been an intern at the U.S. Senate and all that. And, uh, and I guess we started talking about juvenile justice. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do that. Well, at the time, no lawyer wanted to do juvenile justice work. There's no future in it. There's no money in it. There's no career in it. You get assigned to that because someone has to do it for three months or whatever. So I was the first full-time juvenile prosecutor in the state of Iowa, in the largest city. And, of course, my hoodlum friends were like, so you're a juvenile prosecutor now, huh? Really? (laughs) And I'm like, well, who better than me to know the difference between and I thought of this one after I was on the job for a while, but who better than me to know the difference between a kid who, commits a, who happens to commit a crime 
or a criminal who happens to be a kid. And if everyone in that system is all goody two-shoes and never knew a bad person in their life, you know, how do you, and it's all kind of judgment and how do you get to a kid and what are they really doing and, you know, and so, it, you know, I, 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 it worked out pretty well because, you know, I had some associations with, with people who didn't turn out so well. Right. In my hometown, here's a funny story. When I was in law school, I was in what's called prisoner assistance clinic, a clinical program where you get hands-on stuff, and you went and represented, or, and represented prisoners in, in the in the state uh, prison. And then we went down there with a couple other law school students, and we're walking through the yard. Three people said hello to me by my first name. None of them said anything until the day was over. And we're back in the car. What was that all about? <laughs> well, I grew up with him, and I went to school with him, and you know that one I actually don't like, you know. But he was older than me, and but he yeah he's really bad. The other two are just you know what, you know my explanation seemed kind of normal, and they were like, you knew three guys in the prison for Pete's sake. Yeah, well, how how did that experience change you? How did what? Taking on that role. It, as as a attorney for in juvenile justice. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, giving respons given responsibility, and again, this is an area where here, don't call us, we'll call you. And I mean, I was important in that system from day one. You had the opportunity to be important from day one because no one else wanted it. Right. And if you worked hard, and you were good or whatever, you really, you really, you know, accomplish something. Um, you change people's lives. You change people's lives. Um, and again, that's a hard system to change people's lives. But, um, you know, the probation officers and the social workers, they never had an attorney who wanted to be there before, who would work so hard, who would help them prepare their cases better, who would, you know, do all those things. So, you know, I, I, I took it very seriously, of course. And, um, and you know, I, I'd say the biggest thing was um, accomplish, you know, okay, you accomplish something. Hard work and trying hard and, and doing what you're supposed to do um, is a good thing. And people recognize that. Not, not, that, not that that's why you do it, but okay, this works. Take this seriously. Do what you're supposed to do. Use your talents. Work hard. Work beyond hard, because in that kind of system, there's never enough hours in a day. Right. There's never enough hours in a day. Did you love the job? Um. Well, you know, that's a long time ago, and and things changed, but, but certainly yes. Again. You're contributing. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, making a difference. And again, that's a system where making a difference is a small difference. It's not just that system. It's the whole legal system, right. but in criminal and all that. But you know, contributing and 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 other people going thank you and 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 that kind of thing. 
So I don't know how you got from there to the Blues Foundation, but there's one other stop, right? At least one other stop, which is Panama? Well, what happened was I paid off my school loans in 1982. And I'm, it's kind of like, okay, what's next? I've been, been in that position for four and a half years. So now I'm 29 years old or whatever. And I read in the newspaper that a Peace Corps recruiter was coming to Des Moines and they were doing their thing a half a block from my office and I'd always contemplated since 1961 or whatever when President Kennedy announced it that I would join the Peace Corps and so I went over there and then well here's the application fill it out and I filled it out and you know there's a couple of two steps forward one step back but eventually um, they called and says they want attorneys in the Solomon Islands. Are you interested? And I said, I'll go. Where are they? <laughs> um, and so in, I left the Polk County Attorney's Office in 1982. And in January of 1983, I flew uh, with some other new volunteers uh, to the Solomon Islands. So once again, at this point, had you traveled a lot? At that point, I'd only been to um, the Polkine Tours. I was sent me to some training, and the Juvenile Justice Center is in, in the University of Reno, whatever, whatever in Reno. Okay. And so I'd been to Reno a couple of times, and I had one of my hometown friends lived in Vegas, so I'd tagged on a couple of days to one of those trips. And, uh, and I had been to... San Diego, and I'd been across the border, you know, for some tequila for a couple hours. <laughs> right. So the only time I'd ever been out of the United States is uh, across the border for a few hours in, teque- in, uh, in, in Tijuana. Right. So you have no idea where, you, what you, where you're going and what you're walking into? No. And what was that like? Um, when you've had so many experiences like, like I have, you know, it's hard to... But, of course, it changed my life. Um, you know, they always say that, you know, the whole point of the Peace Corps, this is more of a 60s thing, you know, we're the smartest, brightest people in the world, blah, blah, blah. We're going to come over and help you. Well, um, and there's still some truth in that, but the world has changed a lot since then. So, in my case, you know, and I was a legal advisor to the government over there, but to just appreciate another culture and to learn that there are things to get into and dig and dig and enjoy no matter what. Um, I love the Solomon Island people. I love the lifestyle. Um, I had to keep telling myself, don't get married and don't stay here. (laughs) When your time is up, go back to the United States. And of course, volunteers do that. And I used to joke, if I married the right woman in this country, I'd be running this place in a couple of years or whatever. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that's true, but it might have been. Uh, but, you know, you're living in the South Pacific, walking around barefoot half the time, um, but with good people in a totally different culture. Mm-hmm. And the respect, you know, there are people that if you go over there and, and I saw some volunteers that 
couldn't quite adjust to the fact that, you know, maybe the most important for, thing for me to do here is to fit in and be cool. And, you know, you heard the phrase appropriate technology, appropriate relationships with the people here or whatever. Right. If you go over there and you stick with the theory that I'm here to, I'm here to teach you, I'm here to help you do what you want to do. It, you know, kind of works better, and um, and I, and I think I learned very early on that I think they all got more to teach me than I got to teach them. How long were you there? Uh, Twenty-seven months. Wow. And then we went to Panama. Or did you want to go back to the states? Well, I came back to the states, and my goal really was was to get a paying job outside of. United States, you know, the Peace Corps was about fifty dollars a week was what you got paid. So, but it, but outside of United States, the idea of travel was. Yeah. Big, oh yeah. I'm 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 sold then. And on the way back from, on the way back from the Solomon Islands, you know, we we hopped through some islands, and I spent I spent time in the Philippines and Singapore and Thailand, and then in Spain and England. So I saw and spent time in those places on the way back and so my goal was to get a job with some some place you know outside the country again um, that did not happen and I took a job with the US government in Atlanta and I worked there for about a year and a half and that's where I heard about the job in Panama at which you did what in Panama in Panama well I was hired to be you know their labor and human resources lawyer okay so I did labor relations and Human resources, and which is advising the, the non-lawyers that run those things, and also representing the the Panama Canal Commission in cases, also discrimination cases. Um, I uh, was in charge of the toll hearings and the regulations that go with that to raise the tolls and the justification for that, and I was in charge of of writing and lobbying for the changing of federal regulations. And I was in charge of the writing and lobbying, identifying lobbying, writing of legislation to change the Panama Canal Act. So I was, you know, in, in advising the, the staff in, in Panama, which is a you know, U.S. government agency. So I'm advising them. I'm representing them in hearings. I'm representing them in court in the states. And I'm lobbying on their behalf before Congress um, in Washington, D.C. Wow. So the question is, how did that become, or how did you, from that, become the president CEO of the Blues Foundation? Well, I went to the Jazz Fest in New Orleans in, from Panama in 1991, I think. First time I ever went to Jazz Fest. A, 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 a girl, a, a, a girlfriend, I mean a, a friend who's a woman from my hometown, says, man, I can't believe you've never been to Jazz Fest. You've got to go to the Jazz Fest. So Priscilla and I went to the Jazz Fest, and it's like, yeah, wow, she's right. How come I've never been here before? And that was from Panama, and I think we went back the second year, and two guys were standing in front of me that had on T-shirts, who I knew both of them. They were my friends. And they both had on the same T-shirt from the Ultimate Rhythm and Blues Cruise. The very first one had been the year before. And I'm kind of dancing there going like this, and pretty soon, you know, I'm like, hey, these guys have got the same T-shirts on. Hey, what's this Ultimate Rhythm Blues Cruise? Well, they told me, and so we got back to Panama. I look it up, 
And so we went on the the second and the first chartered Ultimate Rhythm Blues Cruise in January of 1994. And, you know, once that happens, if you're a music lover and a fun lover, you're hooked. You're hooked. So we went on a number of blues cruises, and in 90, in 96, we came up to Memphis for the first time for the W.C. Handy Awards. And uh, in typical fashion, um, another couple, Priscilla and I and another couple, and uh, all the way up, I'm like, man, Luther Allison, Luther Allison, Luther Allison's the best, you know. And we walk into the, it's kind of convinced there now, but it wasn't configured like it is now. And we walk in there, and there's Luther Allison standing there in his striped vest. He didn't have his jacket on, and and he's talking to two two women, or two women are talking to him. And we walked up there, and I'm like, you know, I'm meeting, oh my God, there's Mick Jagger, but no, oh my God, there's Luther Allison. You know, and uh, we walked up there, and he nodded to us, and then went back to his conversation. So he acknowledged us, and went back to his conversation. All three of us, from Panama really were impressed with that because in Panama whoever shows up last gets service which drives Americans nuts right. but you know wait I was here but whoever comes anyway <laughs> he acknowledged this and then went back to what he was doing and he's done with them so we have pictures with Luther from the very first time we were in in in, uh, in, in Memphis and then I met uh, I guess I met, well, I'm not sure. But eventually, I, I well, so I joined the Blues Foundation and I became a member and I offered to help in any way. And eventually what happened was, is I started um, writing articles for the website and advising blues societies on issues of organization and nonprofit law. So which, at this of, time which of course I knew nothing about until I said, I'll do that. And I ordered two books, and I started, you know, like lawyers do. Any lawyers don't know anything until they get a case, and they got to research it. So that's what I did. But that, by this time, you're like a full-fledged blues fan. Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, we, we talked earlier about um, my dad's record collection, all that. You know, I, I was, I listened to the top forty, and I bought forty-fives, and then I bought albums, and I went to teen dances, and I went to concerts, and then I bought eight tracks, and then I bought albums again and then I bought cassettes and then I bought CDs and went to concerts and read Rolling Stone and you know people who had a music question would ask me you know but um, and I and I really got tired of rock and roll and I tried everything else and it was probably really going on the blues cruise that he was like Again, why didn't someone tell me about this before? Well, it hadn't been going on before, but blues music, and not just the music, but the musicians themselves, and even to an extent, the fans. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, these are my peeps. Um, but, you, you know, we went on a blues cruise with Terrence Simeon and Marsha Ball and Little Charlie and the Nightcats and, and the Fabulous Thunderbirds and Lonnie Brooks and and you know by the time the cruise was over and we're from we're panamaniacs by the time the cruise was over terence simeon and, and, and ralph uh 
Ralph Fontenot are your two best friends, and your third best friend is Ronnie Baker Brooks. Now, this is kind of cool, <laughs> you know, so. And then the next year we went, and that's was Taj Mahal's first year, and we became friends with Taj Mahal on that cruise, and we've all been, I mean, pretty good friends with Taj Mahal uh, ever since, and, uh, you know, when it gets personal like that, not just the personal friendship, but when you know them and you like their music, it's just so much more personal. Mm -hmm. So when this opportunity came up and you started volunteering and everything, and then this opportunity to work with the foundation, I mean, that's a huge jump. Well, yes, except for the fact that I was unemployed. Oh, okay. You know, the United States government transferred the canal at the end of 99. Right. And so I worked for the U.S. government in Panama for about nine months after that. It was no longer running the canal, but there was closeout stuff. Like what? Well, you had to pay everybody in January, even if you're no longer running the canal. And then you had to finish their personnel paperwork. And then you had to kick everyone out of the houses and you had to get their stuff out of the country and you had to get them out of the country, the Americans or whatever. And then there was pending litigation. So anyway, I did that until until October of 2000. And then Priscilla and I basically traveled around for a while. Um, United States, Canada, uh, South America. And, and I was still serving as a volunteer and stuff. Was there any other plan, like, of what you might do? Well... Actually, I applied for the job when I was still in Panama. Before Howard got it, I applied for the job. So I, I had my, I, I mean, I wanted to do that, even though I had no idea what I was talking about or getting into. And, you know, there's a joke that, you know, that in the late 90s, everyone's talking about what are you going to do next? Well, most of them are going to retire, but what, you know, where are you going, da, da, da. What are you going to do, Jay? You can't retire. I'm going to run the after about 38 rum and cokes or whatever, what you do in the tropics, I'm going to run the Blues Foundation. Okay. I mean, that's a true story that I said that one night um, to a guy who's been here to the wards about three times since. And uh, so, you know, it's something I want to do. I want to change my career path. And I was, in, you know, you know how it is when you first get involved in blues? Man, it's like your first love. And you are never going to have a different love ever in the history of the world. And there's no love like this, and don't even talk about anything else. I am in love with the blues, and the blues is the craziest, coolest, greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world. So I need to go to work in the blues world. So, you know, that's kind of was my attitude. By 2003, the Blues Foundation was in bad shape. I need to go back to work after not working for two and a half years or whatever it was. And at that time, you know, George W. Bush was the president. Try getting a federal job. I'm not sure that they were looking at who I'd been given money to in the 90s, but the only jobs were on military bases, mm -hmm. which you can pretty much imagine. This is after 2000, or you know, after 9/11, so you can pretty much imagine that me on a military base. Oh man, this is not going to work well. <laughs> and I was getting nowhere, you know. I, Really, I, my job chances were not great, in, you know, at that time as a lawyer. You've been out of the country for, for 
most of the last 20 years and there's a Republican in, in charge and we're on war footing. So, um, Were you concerned? Was it a big concern? Or I no, because I just don't get, I just don't do that. I just don't <laughs> I do think that. So. I just don't do that. Um, and so, you know, in the summer of 2000, well, it was the summer of 2002 when, when Howard stepped down and, uh, and they started, you know, recruiting, but, you know, they didn't have a great deal of success. And in the end, you know, I was one of their few choices. Now, this is also a case of be careful what you wish for, right? Because you don't know what the job is. You come in and it's not a pretty thing. Well, I knew it wasn't a pretty thing. Oh, okay. I knew it was not a pretty thing because I was on the advisory board and 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 the staff was communicating with me so in the in the big sense i knew it was in not in good shape but knowing that macro doesn't prepare you for when you yeah. see the micro and um was there ever a possibility it wouldn't continue yes very much like so a good possibility oh very much so um in in the summer when i came to work in march of 2003 we owed people several hundred thousand dollars, and we owed hotels from two BM two handy awards previously. And you couldn't go back to a hotel if you owed them money, and it was hard to even go to the next hotel when there was such a small town in Memphis or whatever. So we were in debt and low membership and all that stuff, and um, they hire a guy who's an attorney who's never run anything in his life. And are you thinking, I can turn this around? Somebody had to step up to the plate, and if I'm the best person, so be it. And as it turns out, I was the best person because the the few people that applied were less qualified, less interested, wanted too much money, wouldn't even move here, knew nothing about blues. So at least they got a hardworking, intelligent, passionate person mm -hmm. out of the deal which in retrospect probably is about all you need. Right. What, what did you, like from the, totally from the blues perspective, not the blues foundation or business perspective, but just from the, the blues music perspective, what did you learn from, what was the first thing that surprised you when you joined the blues foundation? Not business, but of the blues. Thomas Roof once asked me, so how'd you get to the blues? And I said, beer. He laughs. He's a German, but he's a wine drinker, right? And I says, well, I've been going to live music events, you know, since I was able to. And I end up going to live blues music events. And live blues music events are more fun than almost any other live music events because the musicians, one, the music is good. And, and, and the musicians are nice to you. And you get to meet them, and the fans aren't too bad themselves or whatever. So, um, you know, at, then I learned that there's this historical part, and there's this scholarly part, and there's all these other parts of, of the importance of blues. I didn't come to this from the industry. I did not come from this from a musician. I did not come from this from scholarship. I did not come from this from any of that stuff. I came from this as the guy who bought a ticket and, and really enjoyed it. 
Right. So, um, and 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 I would say that that's right or wrong, long term or what. That it, that is one of the successes that we had during my time because we made it fun. And I think funds always sells more than scholarship right. and history or whatever. Now I don't mean to demean any of that, but that was not where I came from, and that's not my that was not my specialty. And I think we, you know, and 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 then you know one day it dawned on me, well I don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed. This stuff started on Saturday night, mm-hmm. trying to have a good time. So to me that was a little bit of a validation you know when i when that dawned on me that i don't have to apologize for lack of history and scholarship and seriousness about this i come from the put the furniture against the wall and let's get out some whiskey and have a good time on saturday night school of blues how long did it take i'm not sure that's a school by the way <laughs> <laughs> oh i think it is but how long did it take for you to turn it around like how you came in thinking oh this is a mess and probably as you got into more, saw a bigger mess. Was it easy to, to turn it around? Well, in a sense, it was easy to turn around because just working hard and trying hard and dedicating yourself every day to doing something, to doing something, to doing something different, to doing something better, to doing something, you know, it, there was so much to do that if you just worked hard, you were going to make progress. And I did work seven days a week, you know, for a long, 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 long time. And got other people's, you know, to, to do. But you had to convince, you know, and hardly anyone knew me at the time. Who the hell is this? In the blues community and in the Memphis community. I was the first non-Memphian, for all intents and purposes, to ever be in charge. And, uh, you know, so you had to prove yourself. Um you know, I guess, you know, some passion and sincerity and, and saying things that weren't totally stupid must have brought a few people on board that, well, I'll, I'll help, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll join or whatever. So was it a matter of getting people on board? Because you obviously had to raise money to pay back money. You obviously had to get more people to help you out in terms of that and whatever else you had planned. What was the, what was the, what was the key to the success? Or what was the key to turning it around? Other than the hard work, was there one thing that you said, oh, let's implement this and this could make a difference? No, I do not believe that. I believe it was treating this this organization with seriousness and, and dedication on a daily basis and caring about details and showing musicians and fans and industry people that we're going to work hard and we're going to do this to the best of our ability and so, you know, and, and, and slowly but surely, day after day after day, they saw that, that, that um, this was, this was going to happen or this might happen. I, I, no, I don't, there was not a single thing. It was, it was this guy means business. I see some changes, you know, that kind of thing. Then someone tells someone else, someone goes to bat for, for the organization. You know that kind of thing. So I, I think it was you know steadiness and and day to day hard work. There was no master plan, and there was no one thing. And at what point after you joined did you think, oh okay, I think we've turned the corner? 
Well, we made net income, and I kind of forget now for sure, but I think we made net income every year that I was the boss. But you still had to get rid of the debts. Right, but as long as it was going in the right direction. So membership was growing, more bands were coming to the IBC, more nominees were coming to the BMAs, um, th there was a little bit of money left over to pay off the debts. So as long as it was going in that right direction, you you knew that you could get there. Um, and every single year, again, he's starting in 2004, it had to have been 2004 because we wouldn't have been able to keep the doors open, but it had to be starting in 2004, there was, there was net income. And, uh, and, and when you start paying off on debts, people start going, okay, they'll get there, they'll get there. And there were there was some people in some organizations that helped save it, you know, kind of crucial interventions at that time. Um, that that um, believed enough to, okay, we're going to stick our finger in the dike for you, or here's here's a couple band aids. So there was there was certainly some some people in organizations that were critical to buy time to see whether I and the new we could turn this around? I'm not sure if this is a fair question that you can easily answer, but if I was to ask you what was the best day and the worst day, can you answer that? About the whole experience? Yeah, like just in your tenure of being the CEO president. Oh, the best thing is the people that... Sorry, I'm thinking more of a day, an incident, oh. a time. Oh, like even a funny one? Yeah, but I mean the best and the worst. Because I could, I could also imagine that there are many bad days and more to do with the losses or whatever. Well, one of the things about being a successful leader, a good leader, is is you try to stay even keel. It's like a baseball season, you know. It's a long season or whatever. You know, you think of President Barack Obama. Just think of how many times he held his tongue mm -hmm. and did the right thing instead of what he'd like to have done in, in those eight years. Or what other people might be doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, well, well, I, I just didn't, I, I mean, I could tell, but I always took the highs. I always took all this stuff kind of in stride. Mm. Don't don't get too high. Don't get too low. Um, I guess I think in so there are fun parts of it and there are bad parts. But again, I still kind of, you know, I mean, someone might call me up on the phone and I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe so and so is calling me. and I'm talking to so and so. Right. Or you know, at one point the board wanted to fire me. No, excuse me. At one point, some board members wanted to fire me. They didn't have the votes, but that certainly wasn't a fun time. I guess not. How do you recover from something like that? You just, you know, you just, it's, it's not about me, it's about the organization. They're wrong, they didn't win, the majority know they're wrong, the majority, you know, stuck with me. Right. Um, my job is to serve the blues community, so 
I don't, you know, the, you, you just, you can't take it personally. You, you know, you're the, you're the leader, you know, and then you're the servant to the community. So, you know, and again, whether that's my temperament or the legal training or whatever, but leaders can't do what our current president is doing and snipe at everyone that, that, that right. messes with them. Right. You got to be above all that stuff. So, you know, I got a pretty thick skin. Of course, I drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you give me, like the Blues Hall of Fame is a huge deal. I presume you had a big deal to do with that. Would that be your most proudest moment? Well, I don't think in terms of proud, <laughs> pride. Um, it's a huge accomplishment. And, you know, to oversimplify, yes, I pretty much did that. It was my idea. I said we can do this. And I raised most of the money. Now, there are other people involved and all that, but, yeah. you know, yeah, that was pretty much... And, you know, Eric Simons was the board chairman then, and he would tell you that... I thought this was crazy, but I went along with it, and Jay put it on his back, and he made it happen. Okay, so that's huge in the long run. And there were people that were against that, too. But on a personal basis, what I am most proud of, to use that word, is um, the Blues Foundation's relationship with the rest of the world. Which is, I don't know if you knew that when you first came in, but it's pretty amazing how international it is. And and I presume through the work of the Blues Foundation, the IBC or whatever, I mean, it's pretty amazing how you go to so many different parts of Europe and there's the blues. Yeah, that was not the case when I came. And um, again, you know, you got me talking about me, which is not what I normally do, but it's respect for other people. Mm-hmm and other cultures and we talked about that in the Peace Corps I'm, I'm here to teach you or I'm here to help you do what you know best how to do or whatever and um, you know the Americans can be some of the most arrogant know-it-alls in, in the world and other people are just as smart or smarter and they certainly know more about their own situation and if you're not, if you don't think that way, if you don't feel that way, you're going to blow it. You know, Detlef Hogan's been in the blues world a lot longer than Jay Seelman. So to go over there and to Germany or, you know, and act like you know something around someone who really does, you know, you're going to blow it right. if you do the wrong thing or whatever. And so by having respect for other people, it just opens doors. Was retirement a difficult decision? Or did you feel like, I've done everything I can, it's time to go? There was a lot of factors, but certainly that was one of them. I, I had no other ideas and who, you know, and I was, you know, I was tired. I was out of ideas. I was tired of making decisions. Um, I had no new ideas. I didn't want to even deal with them things that I used to think were important and deal with I didn't want to do anymore and then I was old enough and rich enough you know you can't just people don't quit right. unless they're stupid unless they're you know unless they have a, a financial plan but you know 
it's like, again, I'll go back and talk about President Obama. How good do you think he feels now that he doesn't have to make decisions every single day on every single thing and put up with every single thing, you know? So that's the negative side. Okay, I've been a nice guy as long as I can. <laughs> twelve and a half years is about 12 years longer than I ever was before. Right. And there's a lot of, you know, I mean, there are so many wonderful people. And then there are the ones that are sort of takers. Me, 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 me. Yeah, whatever. So, you know, but it was, it was definitely time for new blood. Definitely time for new blood. And retirement has been good for you? Yeah. Have I, you enjoyed it? Like, is it an adjustment? Well, yeah, it's an adjustment. The biggest thing is to me, and I, I tell the story that we alluded this earlier, how much fun I had in the summertime when I was in college. Right. Man, did I love June and July. August, I started getting a little weird because now you're on the downslope. June and July is all up, man. Plenty of time left. Everything's beautiful. August, he's oh, my God, this is almost over. And, you know, some people's psyche would be, well, don't worry about it. you still got three or four weeks left. But I always started, you know, getting thinking about it. It's almost over. And uh, so when you've been working hard and striving and doing stuff and accomplishing stuff all your life, um, and now you're like, uh, what do I do now? It is an adjustment, but I read, I walk, I ride bicycles, I've raised money for the Bobby Blue Bland statue. Um, I joke that no one spends more time in the downtown library in Memphis but besides me than the homeless, you know. Um, I, walk, I, I walk around town and I'm even Michael Kinsman today goes, so you pretty much, you know, walk around like you work for the Tourist and Convention Bureau, the Chamber of Commerce, bragging up Memphis all the time. Well, downtown Memphis is a cool place to live. You know, people go, so now that you're retired, where are you moving to? I'm not leaving downtown Memphis. This is one of the coolest places on the planet. It's fun to live here. The people are cool, and there's so much to do within walking distance. So, you know, it, it was the right decision, and I have no regrets. And, you know, you, uh, a a small organization, you know, Mick Klaas always says that the footprint of the Blues Foundation is bigger than its foot. And that's because the staff is always so hardworking and there's so many volunteers. And so by its success, you think, oh man, how many people work there and how big is its budget or whatever? Well, it's none of that. You cannot coast, you know, these days you can't coast anywhere, but mm -hmm. you cannot coast in a small organization that's that's running, you know, at full speed, you know, at maximum RPMs or whatever. You, 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 so you, you can't have the boss coasting. The boss has to be stuffing envelopes and, and, and making notes at 2 o'clock in the morning and, and coming in early and staying late and going in on weekends and, and doing all that stuff to make an organization like that run. And when you've had enough, you really need to do the right thing and get out. You haven't regretted it. No, no, not not at all. You know, the, the adjustment and this and that, um, but regret it? No, it was the right decision to make at the time, and I have no re no regrets about that. Well, I have to tell you from my personal point of view, when I first met you, I said, can I do something for you? And you immediately said we should do an immemorial video. Um, what you've given me through that 
is I can't even thank you for that. Um, also, just you know, I think it gave me credibility, and I just I can't thank you enough for what you did for me. So I'm I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you, and uh, just want to let you know how much it meant to me. Well, and I and I think Michael that you know, and I remember first meeting you up up in Toronto and and the exchange or whatever, and and, and you know, and you probably remember the details better than me, but. Again, I treated you with respect from, mm-hmm. from the first from the first instance, and you have been doing things something for the Blues Foundation, but you're thanking me for allowing you, you know, and that's and and I think if you go through life with the right attitude and the right respect for people, that's the kind of mm-hmm. uh, that's that's what you get back, and um, you know, whether it's my mom and dad or being a small town Iowa boy or whatever. Right. Um, you know, I mean, that's a little bit of a stereotype, but being a Midwesterner is sort of like being a, a Canadian. Well, they're kind of nice people. You know, they treat everyone nice. It's not like you're a, you know, a New Yorker or whatever, you know, um, where you got to listen to I, God, I think he was a compliment, but it sounded like an insult, you know? Yeah, that was a compliment. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, you know, my parents were nice people and community activists and, and public servants and that kind of thing. And you, and you grew up with, with that kind of small town, do what you can, chip in mentality, um, but get a little worldly, worldly about it. it. You know, it may work everywhere. And, you know, I think the Europeans and, and Colombians and, and other people would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it must feel good. I mean, it must be amazing to, to accomplish what you have. And then, as I said, I'm indebted to you. I, the, one of the greatest awards I was I received was the Keeping the Blues Alive yeah. Award, and that came from you. I, you know, I mean, you, you were physically the one who gave me the phone call and also gave me the award, and I know it was a panel who chose that, but that's huge. So I want to thank you, and I thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me. Well, that was kind of fun, wasn't it? I, it was for me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.